0: i sure reading this morning comes from the book of Philippians, beginning in chapter one, verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remem- remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Amen. You may be seated.
1: All right. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Stonehouse. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are beginning a new series this week in uh, the book of Philippians, which we just read the first 11 verses, Um, and uh, just going to journey uh, basically passage by passage through this book of Philippians, which is a letter uh, written by Paul the Apostle, uh, who was in Philippi when the church first began, um, and then uh, had other travels and moved around the region and ended up um, getting arrested, ended up being shipped off to Rome uh, for trial, and ended up in Um, prison in Rome from where he writes this letter to the church at Philippi, okay? Um, And so often when we look at scripture, uh, we need to remind ourselves of uh, the persons, um, the close personal uh, interaction and application of the texts that are delivered to us through the scriptures. We have God's holy and authoritative word given to us. Um, But the way that it is given to us is through personal exchanges, right? So this is a a brother who has labored heavily in the gospel, who watched God open up hearts, uh, set people free, um, literally save a jailer in Philippi. It was, what, at the beginning of the church in Philippi. You can read about it in Acts 17. That's how the church started, through God doing miraculous things. Paul just kind of sitting back going, whoa! Whoa, whoa! As people just started encountering the gospel and being changed by the power of the truth of God in the midst of a city that was full, just just chock full of different sorts of ideas, different sorts of gods, different sorts of false promises and false hopes, uh, the truth of the gospel came to that city through Paul's ministry. Also, Silas was involved in that ministry. Also, Timothy was involved in that ministry. And so Paul was just blown away at what the gospel had done in Philippi. And as he traveled and journeyed on, that church continued. He knew about it. He heard about it. Um, They continued a relationship, uh, you know, because they were Twitter followers and stuff. And so when Paul eventually ended up in prison um, and had more time to blog, he sent these guys a letter um, to encourage them. And that's, that's what we're reading today, right? So it's important to understand these are, while there are theologically lofty, claims and truths being communicated by Paul in this letter, it's from a person to people. right? We're going to see that right away in this first section of the passage. It's from a caring, loving, deeply concerned individual for other human beings in the situation of their life, uh, in the place that they are in, uh, because of everything that's surrounding them, trying to encourage them uh, in their faith and give them the confidence of knowing that God is for them. Um, it's important for us to remember that because we're going to get into some beautiful theology in Philippians. There's quite possibly one of the most glorious portraits of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, ever, ever written, is written here in Philippians. Actually, if you want to turn with me to Philippians 2 or if you've got a Bible app, page down a few um, pages. And if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we've got free ones back at the table you can grab those at any time. But starting in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2, I'm not going to read this, but I just want you to glance at it. Starting in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2 through verse 11, we have this uh, kind of this Christ poem, uh, this, this messianic poem about the servanthood of God the Son, um, the complete reversal of the curse by god's own begotten son the, the glorious turning of the course of human history on the person and the work of jesus christ that he was god and he laid down his godness to put on human flesh he did the exact opposite thing that adam did adam was but a man and he said i'm going to take upon my manhood godness i'm going to reach for the fruit and say I should have the same knowledge of God. Jesus did the exact opposite thing. He said, I have all of the knowledge of God and I'm going to lay my godness down and take up humanness, right? And he entered into our circumstance and completely reversed uh, the curse of Adam. He did that so that through his life and through his death and through his resurrection we might come to all new life. And because Jesus did that, because Jesus set aside utter glory for humanness. And he died on a cross, the most excruciating kind and the most humiliating kind uh, of death ever that existed. What happened? God gave him the name that is above every other name. This poem sits right at the center of all of the book of Philippians. Like every passage that we're going to be looking at kind of centers itself on this great, central poem of Jesus. If you're into scripture memorization and you've never memorized that scripture, please turn to it next and memorize Philippians 2, 6 through 11. If you're not into scripture memorization, start with Philippians 2, 6 through 11. It would be a great, great thing to start and to remember um, this portrait of Jesus that Paul gives in Philippians. So we're going to get to some glorious theology right that's what theology is the truth about god that we see in jesus christ and what he did for us that that's that's the depths of it right that's the the breadth of it that's the the miracle of it is that god in his word has shown us these amazing things and we get to read them and take them into ourselves and go oh my goodness this is what is true and if this is what is true then therefore there are all these implications there are all these meanings that spiral out into our life one of them is the way paul opens this letter he says paul and timothy servants okay this is church planter paul visited by jesus on a horse made blind and got to see talked to by jesus personally through visions right taught the word of god by jesus personally joined in fellowship with Peter and the disciples in Jerusalem, sent by those disciples out into uh, the lands to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, planted almost every single church that existed after his life in the New Testament, and he simply says, hey, servant, hi, servant, right? Like, what what is that all about? It comes from his portrait of Christ in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. He says, I serve Christ Jesus, who was God and came and took on flesh to serve humans, so therefore I'm but a servant. I'm but a servant. That was his accolade, right? This is, this is how he introduced himself. And he didn't introduce himself as just Paul, the great apostle. He said, no, it's me and Timothy, and we're servants. We're servants. Every uh, truth and aspect of this letter connects back to that glorious... Um, portrait of Jesus Christ that we see in Philippians two six through eleven. So we're going to always have that portrait in mind. We're going to kind of approach it, and we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks, and then we'll kind of uh, finish the letter out. But we'll always be looking at those those words there. Um, also in this introduction, like we saw last week, we briefly looked at First Peter. We see that Paul in, in verse two says grace and peace to you. Right? He says grace and peace to you, and it's not just simply some passing greeting. Uh, he reaffirms the truth of the gospel that grace to us and peace for us is only possible because of Jesus Christ. Um, That God's grace comes to us not because we deserve it, but because Jesus Christ has earned it for us, and therefore it's a gift from the hand of God. And that peace then also comes to us through that same life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that we can actually live in a peaceful relationship with God who we were once enemies with, we can actually abide with him in peace and experience a, a life of peace because we're at peace with the creator of life. Right? These the grace and peace are, are pillars to Paul's teaching, to Paul's theology, so much so that they're a part of just his simple greeting and introduction to the people. Right? He reminds them from the start, this is all about what Jesus has earned for you. This is all about what you have now because of God and what he has done for you. So because of the grace that you have, because of the peace that you have, I'm going to greet you in a joyous and glorious way, and I'm going to show you uh, further what is the truth of the gospel that you are believing in, that you are staking your life in. right? So let me read a couple of these verses again to start out, and then uh, we'll jump in um, and uh, and walk here verse by verse through this. So here's uh, Philippians 1. 1 through, uh, let's do to verse 6. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. ...at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray uh, before we jump in further. Father, thank you for this moment and this morning, um, this opportunity uh, to quiet ourselves and to gather um, in your name in this place uh, so that we might grow, so that we might learn, so that we might um, behold uh, the glorious truth of the gospel, um, which is good news um, because of Christ's work for us, because of um, God's peace that's been given to us through Christ... Um, because we can be recipients of grace simply um, by faith, um, putting our hope, um, putting all of our trust uh, into the person and the work of Jesus Christ who is this, this glorious servant. Though he is totally and fully God, he became man to serve us, which is profound when we think of how uh, rare it is for us to ever see a true servant. Um, that you, God, who deserve all glory, um, sent Jesus to be the servant for us. Uh, that we might behold the, the good love and the, the powerful grace of the God who created us. Uh, we are in deep need of, of you this morning. We don't just say that as a, as a, as a phrase we understand and we recognize that uh, without you, we don't have hope, um, and that with you, we do have hope. Um, and we've heard this this day, this week, um, this month, whatever it is in our life, we've heard all sorts of different truths and different claims. Um, and God, there's something about the fullness of the truth of the gospel that is utterly transforming to us, and we pray that you would uh, open our hearts to it, that we might truly hear um, that we might see Jesus and uh, understand what it means to partake in the gospel this morning. Uh, we love you and thank you again for the freedom to be in this place. Uh, we ask that you would help us today in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. so Paul um, jumps right into this letter with thankful joy in verse 3, saying that he thanks God in all of his remembrance of these people. So he's, he's saying, listen, whenever I, whenever I think of you guys, I'm thankful. Right, and whenever I pray for you guys, that time of prayer has joy in it, right? And this is, again, not some lofty theological claim, but it is a deeply personal situation. So if you think about your life and your interactions with people that you've ever taught anything, okay, okay, and then you think about the interactions of teaching those people something, whether it's a child, whether it's a, a protege, whether it's a, a student in a class, or whatever it is, when you think of that person who had uh, to grow, who had to learn, who had to stumble through the things that you were teaching, who probably you know, screwed it up at times, who, who completely misunderstood you at other times, uh, who maybe even talked back at you, God forbid, uh, spit in your face, or whatever, when you think about somebody that you've invested your life in, is the first thing that comes to your mind thankfulness and joy? Often no, it's like ah, these people are frustrating, right? There's something just annoying or troubling about the whole situation, Uh, I I got spit on, you know, they didn't listen to me, nobody loves me, nobody respects me. You know, like, we have these different interactions with people that cause all sorts of friction and frustration, and Paul is looking back at this church in Philippi, and he's remembering them with thankfulness and joy, It doesn't seem like a normal human type of situation. These are people that he probably had some scuffs with, right? He probably had, I mean, at the beginning of the church in Philippi in Exodus 16, Paul and Silas get thrown in jail, Right? There's a group of people that do not want the gospel preached in Philippi. And so there was resistance, there was fighting, there was hardship in the midst of all that. And so Paul looks back with thankfulness and with joy. And the reason for that thankfulness and that joy, he shows us in verse 5, is because there is a partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, he says. So he looks back on this church, and he looks at the church since he left, and he looks at the church now, even while he's in prison, and he thinks not primarily of what they've not learned, right? He doesn't think primarily of ways they haven't grown. He doesn't think primarily of ways that they were frustrating to him, or they were a toll on his life. He doesn't remind them of the pain that he endured when he started the church in Philippi. Don't you guys remember? It was so hard, right? He rejoices in the fact that they have partnered in the gospel with him and on one level there's a there's a contribution to ministry that's involved here where this church has actually sent gifts and funded Paul's ministry and helped him be a missionary okay so Paul's actually being thankful for that that's part of it that's part of it but there's an even greater part of it and that's we can see it if you look into the Greek which I know we all know very well there's a word that Paul uses here called koinonia it's actually one of the only Greek words I've ever known um, and 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 studied and and like dug into. It's it's a word that is often translated as fellowship. It's a word that's translated as sharing or or co owning something. Paul looks back at the church in Philippi. He looks at their participation in the gospel and he says, "We've shared in this thing." Right? There's actually been a, a co ownership. Of the advancing of the gospel you guys have been partakers with me in this you've been partners with me in this we have been koinonia we have fellowshipped as the gospel has gone forth both in Philippi and in the other places that Paul has been a minister in and so there's this joint ownership there's this partnership um, that that gives Paul this thankfulness and this joy Are these perfect people that Paul is talking about? No. Is this a perfect church that Paul is writing a letter to? No. Right? Is this a spotless crew with an impeccable record? No. But this is people who have entered into the miraculous participation of advancing the good news gospel of Jesus Christ in a world that is resistant to it. Paul recognizes that there's something happening in the midst of this people that that has led them to say the gospel is the truth of God and it reigns triumphant, and it is worth the time and the effort and even the money and the investment of saying, here is the truth, people. Know the truth. Follow the truth. Believe in the truth. Submit to the truth. Be, be joined together by this great truth. Come into this great koinonia. Right? Paul recognizes there's actual personal investment that's gone on here. Again, this isn't just some impersonal uh, theological diatribe of Paul. This is a personal Uh, involved and invested letter where Paul knows and recognizes there are people with stories and histories and hardships and families and jobs and struggles that there are real people with real skin on and real breath in their lungs and he's really saying to them, it's amazing that you would say the gospel is true. It's amazing that you would join with me in trying to make the gospel known all around the world. It is profound that you would prioritize that in your life. It is absolutely unnatural to be partners in the gospel because the gospel is the good news of God's work for us to save us from our sin and to usher us into the new and advancing kingdom of God the world rejects this message The world says, I am good, I do not need saving, or if I need saving, I'll do it myself with my money, my education, or my power. Leave me alone, I'm fine. Don't give me this religious crutch bull malarkey. Right? That's the proclamation of the world. So Paul recognizes when people say, no, the gospel is my treasure. The truth of Jesus is my center. Right? The, the humble servant who laid his life down to bring me into the peace of God, that that is my, my central story. For people to say that that is true is a miraculous work of God. And so whatever little frustrations Paul may have had at the church of Philippi, whatever pain he remembers from his imprisonment and his beating and his name being tarnished back in Philippi, whatever the cost was to himself, whatever the labor he engaged in, he doesn't remember those things and say, gosh, I gave up so much for you guys. He looks back and he says, it's miraculous. It's miraculous that God did this. And it's miraculous that your partner's with me in this as we move forward. It's a glorious realization that whatever uh, advancement of the gospel happens, it happens because of God's work and not ours. And Paul recognizes that and... That advancement of the gospel is a deep personal service that Paul is engaging in and that he knows other people are engaging in too, right? Because listen, the advance of the gospel, like living to see God's church and God's gospel and God's kingdom advance and move forward, it's not some uh, impersonal, pious, just religious duty, right? It's not just put your head down, just do the thing, and you know, monotonous, and 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 not engaging the person at all the the work of the gospel is is a deep heart work it's something that that involves like the entirety of a person it isn't something that we just go through motions there's a deep personal involvement as we proclaim the gospel as we believe the gospel as we desire to advance the gospel And because this is true, Paul's noticing and recognizing the fact that they're engaged in something that is deep and it is personal. It matters to these people that the gospel goes forward. It matters to these people that the gospel had taken hold there in their city, in their church. Right? It mattered to them deeply. It had personal effects on them. Paul may have seen marriages restored because the peace of God came into that marriage and brought that marriage back together. Paul might have seen people's identity restored, people who had been abused or neglected or or just pushed to the margins of society. He might have seen them hear and know and believe, listen, God, the one who created you, he knows you. He knows you and he loves you and he's seen your failings and he's seen your weakness and he's entered into your story to show you grace and to show you compassion and to show you love. Be restored by the peace of God, dear person. Paul may have seen somebody who had just kind of been going through the motions or maybe was medicating their life through whatever source of help they could find just to kind of get by till the next day. He saw that person awaken to the beauty of what life can be, understanding the grace of God. That the fullness of life could really be theirs, even though there's pain, even though there's toil, even though there's struggle. There's still beauty, there's still depth, there's still richness, there's still love. And through the power of the gospel, people's lives were restored to see that that was a true thing. Paul knew there was individual experiences of grace within this church. He knew people had actually felt the forgiveness of God, where previously they had felt nothing but guilt and shame. Paul knew that the preaching of the gospel in Philippi and the preaching of the gospel elsewhere that he went on, it was something that involved the persons and it moved the people. It was not just some lofty theological terminology. It was meaningful and it was important and it was effective. So as Paul writes this letter, he says, "It's, it's joyful to me. It brings thanksgiving to my heart to remember that God has worked in you, that you and I together have participated in the gospel going forward. Because the, the gospel advances both in us and through us, right? So the gospel advance sometimes means churches being planted, means missionaries being sent, means congregations growing, means other things happening, ministries starting. Like sometimes that's what the advancement of the gospel means. Absolutely. And sometimes the advancement of the gospel means it moves us. That we, personally, in ourselves, we start to see growth and truth and beauty and restoration and health and peace come to us inside, whether we see that other kind of gospel growth outside of us or not, right? So Paul's saying, listen, I, I know that the gospel's going forward and churches are being planted, that's true, but what I know even more deeply is that you have been affected by this good news gospel, and because of that, I rejoice you're partnering together with me in it. You see, Paul's idea of the gospel advancing is that it does not ever advance just by a singular person by themselves, that it is God working in and through a community to advance the gospel, that that's how God does it. We're not silos, just off on our own, growing in Jesus and never affecting anybody else, but that together, as we experience God's grace, we move together to see that he is good. We move together to see that goodness in one another and to advance the proclamation of the gospel through our lives and through the things that we see in one another, Paul's understanding of the advancement of the gospel is that this isn't a burden that's simply placed on professional clergy, but it's, it's the church. You are the church. That was Paul's understanding. How the advancement of the gospel was going to happen was not just through him, not just through Peter, not just through Silas, not just through Apollos, not just through Timothy, not just through Epaphroditus, but through them as a people collectively. It cannot depend solely on us by ourselves, it is a work that is done together. And part of this for Paul meant that he cared deeply about the people, about the families, about the stories, about the work of every different person. All right, we see this care in a minute, we'll get into it in the way that Paul expresses his affection for the people. It's like he's in love with them. It's crazy, like it's kind of like, are you ill, dude? Like, we'll get there in a minute, getting ahead of ourselves. You see, in the church, I think often, especially in America, we can think that gospel growth is an individual thing, right? We've been told that faith is a private matter. And like, I get that, right, when it comes to work and like boundaries and so on and so forth. Sure-ish, right? But you're going to grow in your faith when you're connected to others. You're going to grow in the advancement of the gospel in your own soul as you experience the fellowship, the koinonia of gospel sharing, right? Together, understanding more about the truth of God. Together, growing to understand more the fullness of the gospel. There's a togetherness that we, we often just miss. We think, if I just you know stick to myself and study these things and learn the truth all on my own, then I'll truly grow. And Paul really pushes us into understanding there's a deep connectiveness to this growth. You know, like the way cars used to be built or the way that food used to be made before industrialization happened, before the production line happened. There was a community involvement in growing things and building things, right? One of the things we've lost in industrial world and even in information world is the togetherness, right? You can silo yourself and do all of the work that you need to do by yourself and be completely disconnected to others, right? Like you consider the work of what it once meant to build something. It was a lot of people gathering together to one place to build it. Now we just build our separate little parts and pull that all together and boom, there's the thing. We've siloed ourselves off and we've seen this kinda seep into our spiritual lives too where we just, we end up so siloed off. We just think I've gotta deal with these things that I'm learning and we don't have care and concern and connection to others. And this is the part where I plug city groups, right? Like, go learn with people. Do it together. Um, Paul really saw the work of spreading the gospel, both in Philippi and elsewhere, uh, as not just an isolated task and and an individual accomplishment, but rather as a partnership. He really saw it as a partnership. And this partnership was the thing that brought Paul joy. It wasn't that they were perfect people, and he was always thankful for their perfectness. Right? It wasn't that they were pulling off great things and that brought him joy because, man, those guys are awesome. Right? It was the fact that there was a togetherness, the fact that there was a partnership and a sharing and a co-laboring and a co-ownership of advancing the gospel together. It brought him so much joy that he sits in this Roman prison and he uses the word joy or rejoice like 20 times in this letter over and over and over and over and over again. He's like, joy, 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 joy. Down in my heart. Right? Like in prison, remembering the church, his life is filled with joy, right? It's a tremendous thing to think about that. There's so much visible grace to Paul. He sees this reality when he looks in on the church and sees people following Jesus and wanting to learn his word, right? This is a a profound truth that we need to remember again and again because we can get to the place, even when we begin to journey in the gospel together, we're like, okay, that sounds like a great idea. We pull people into our life, we begin to, have relationship we begin to dig in what inevitably happens it goes well every time not every time sometimes we get friction sometimes we get heartache we're still sinners we still disappoint one another there's still friction there's still difficulty there's still tension and in the middle of all that we have to remember this truth that everyone around us needs as much grace as we do Right? Paul moves into this kind of a little more in Philippians uh, 1, 7, and 8. He says this regarding his thankfulness and regarding his joy, regarding his, his gratefulness for their partnership in the gospel. He says it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you uh, are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus." So again, in verse 7, he talks about them being partakers of grace. And we go, kind of go back to that koinonia word because he, he uses a similar word. He says, uh, son koinonos, which means a companion or a sharer, or a, a co-participant. It's got the same root. He's saying a co-fellowshipper. He says, you are partakers with me of grace. Okay? Paul remembers the people as a people who are just like him, and that is that they are weak and frail in need of a reminder of how good God is. He remembers that that's the kind of people that they are, that they are co-sharers in the good news that God is for them even when they fail, right? That they are participating like-minded in the same beautiful reality that who they are is not defined by the things they've done, or the mistakes they've made, but rather who they are is defined by the victory of Jesus, the perfect sinless life of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross for them and his glorious resurrection for them. Their identity is totally banking on the identity of Jesus. Paul remembers that the people in Philippi are just like him in that. And it fuels this deep affection for them, right? It fuels, look at at the words that Paul uses in here. He says, I feel this way. I hold you dear in my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Like, this guy's a blubbering romantic. I yearn for you people. I feel, I have deep feelings when I think about you. I'm moved towards compassionate remembrance when you're on my mind. Right? I mean, it's, it's almost... Like, it's slightly like, get a room, right? It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, you know. It's the old married people looking at the young engaged ones going, yeah, yeah, you wait, you know. Partakers with me of grace. Paul has been moved to see that everyone always is in need of God's grace, and that moves him to an affectionate view of the person's. In Philippi. Okay? Now this isn't this isn't pity. Right? This isn't looking at somebody and going, That guy needs a lot of grace. That, that's not what Paul's doing. Paul's not speaking with a condescending tone. You guys that need grace so much. He's not saying, you know. You guys are still at that baby stage that I once was at that, thank God, I'm no longer at anymore because I've moved beyond my need for grace. But I'm going to talk about you who all need grace over there. Paul's saying, with me in grace. Paul's recognizing with the people, I currently, as church planner, apostle, encountered by Jesus, teaching the Bible, writing two-thirds of the New Testament, I, Paul, need grace and I'm with you in the need for grace. This is a colossal shift that's from what some of us see in church leaders and even when we look back at theologians, right? Now some of that is because of the the, the composition of religion And how sometimes the hierarchical structures of our past have made us feel certain ways about, oh, I'm not holy enough, they're more holy, that's why they're the priest or the pastor or blah, 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 right? Hogwash, lies, all of it, okay? But often the church, leaders in the church, structures of church have promulgated that idea that the pastor's holy, right? That the ministers are holy, that their task is higher, that I'm just a worker bee, but they're like the queen bee, like, pfft, we've, we've... We've seen that continue in our lives and so often we don't hear that the one who wrote the book or wrote the other books or is teaching about the book or holding the seminar or preaching to the congregation, that that guy actually needs grace, that that woman actually needs grace, but they do so deeply. And Paul, I mean, this dude's the hero, right? This dude's the hero for Christians, what he went through, the transformation of his life, the truth that he taught, the educational level that he had attained to, the encounter with Jesus, the churches that he planted. He's the hero and he's here saying, you and I need grace. You and I need grace. This changes everything about our participation with the church. Changes everything about the way that we look at the people around us, the way that we interact in the congregation we're called to live in this community that is marked by a need for grace not marked by some graduation level accomplishments but marked by a need for grace right i don't like to do this whole look at your neighbor thing or whatever but just you know like everyone around you needs grace Every single one of them. Now stop looking at everyone else and put up a mirror. Everyone around you needs grace. Right? Some of you need to hear this as you struggle to grow in the gospel. God's giving you grace. But I don't know the thing. I know God's giving you grace. But I stumbled over that cynic. I know God's giving you grace but I keep getting angry and frustrated and I have an outburst. I know God's giving you grace, but I'm really afraid to take the next step. It's all dark and I don't know where I'm going. I know, and God's giving you grace. Some of you need to hear this this morning. Take it freaking easy on yourself. Here's God's expectation of you for your life now and forevermore. Are you ready? You need his help. That is always going to be true of you. You need his help. And listen, as a human being who's fallen way short, I need to remember. I don't stand on my accolades, or my accomplishments, or my holiness, whatever figment I have of my imagination there. I don't stand on my righteousness. I don't stand on some pedigree. I stand only on the foundation of Jesus Christ, who was perfect in my place. Who was slaughtered for my sin, and who lives now eternally in advocacy for me, saying again and again before the throne of the Father, "He's mine. He's mine. He's mine. He's mine. He's mine. He's mine. He's mine." He's mine. The accuser says, "Yeah, but he's, nope, he's mine." My mind goes, "Yeah, but I, saw, he's mine." My emotions, I can't get over this. He's mine. All of life is grace. Not I, but through Christ in me, like we said. All of life is grace. So listen, some of you need to take it easy on yourself, and some of you need to take it easy on others. Ask yourself if you view others as fellow partakers in grace. Are you sharing burdens without belittling people? Are you celebrating victories without jealousy? Are you repenting of sins and letting go of performance? Do you remind people, like I just did a second ago, that Jesus loves them, that He has grace for them, that His Blood is covering them, reminding them of that truth, confessing together the glories of the gospel, saying, How great is our God that he has done this and this and remained faithful and abundant and glorious? Do we overlook weakness? Do we advocate for faithfulness? Do we boast in Christ and in Christ alone? This is how we partake together in grace. Right? It's a race, but it's not a race. (laughs) Right? Paul talks about the Christian life as a race, but this is not a race, this part. Who needs more grace? If we all actually saw it, we'd be dumbfounded. If we all actually recognized that, debts that we owe to God that are being forgiven on the daily. Let that seep into our soul and lead us to a deep koinonia, a beautiful fellowship of grace, giving and receiving because we're all receiving continually grace from God above. So we start together here at the beginning of philippians by looking around and recognizing we're partners together we are co-sharers in grace we are the koinonia we are the fellowship the fellowship of grace recognizing that we all have gaping holes in our character that are being overlooked by one another that's our reality but also we have a glowing testimony of God's faithfulness to us that look look at ah, you're like me with the mud on the face and the tears making the streak down the middle and the knees with the scuffs and the blood you're just like me and look who still says you're mine it's God God still is saying to you and to me you're mine that's tremendous Let's look at that faithfulness and not stop looking at that faithfulness. Amen. May it move us to have compassion for one another and to deepen our joy at seeing the work of the gospel in us. When we start to see the gospel seeping through the cracks, we go, oh, <laughs> whoa, you want to know God. Whoa, you want to Pursue the truth. Whoa! You're confessing that you're weak. Right? My wife and I had two encounters this week. Actually, it was she had one and we had one together of people owning like a sin. You know what I mean? Like a mistake and a sin. And it's just like you know, not like, hey, it's about time, but like thank God that like, we are moved to the place that we actually say, yeah, my bad. Yep, my sin. Yep, total jerk. Yep, still in need of grace. When we see that, we go, hmm, what a treasure. What a joy, right? Not because you've lowered your head and you're down in the mud, but because God has lifted you from it and is working in you. That, man, celebrate that. Thank you, God. And tell people that right? Tell people that. That was miraculous. You just confessed sin. That's nuts. You thought for 32 hours that you were completely right, and then suddenly you realized that you were a fool. That's amazing. Like, God's at work. Let's celebrate that work. Jesus, the Son of God, the servant of man, who gave us the grace and peace that Paul writes about at the beginning of this letter. He has joined us into this fellowship. Again, because of Philippians 2, 6 through 11, because He lowered Himself, He has brought us into this fellowship. It's a tremendous work. He's the champion, right? He's the one with the name above all names. And we are the ones that get to behold His grace in ourselves and in one another. That's what we're going to do in Philippians, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and for your grace that we can look around the room and say we are one of a collective that is experiencing grace from a compassionate and loving God that is glorious to behold. And so would you break us of our our pride that would lead us to compare ourselves with others around us. Would you bring us into this great fellowship of grace, recognizing and understanding that together we are participants with grace. No one single head rises above the top of any other in this place. We are all recipients of such glorious grace. Lord, plumb the depths of our hearts with this truth that we might be brought to a place of thankfulness and joy because you are at work in the people all around us. That's a reason for joy. That's a reason for thanks, that you continue, though you are holy and perfect and just and powerful and glorious, you continue to concern yourself with the affairs of men. What love what grace. Would you keep on keeping on that beautiful work right here in our midst as we celebrate in Christ's name. Amen.